Uh, but again, today we'll be looking at uh, Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. And I just wanted to pause for a second, really consider like uh, what a sight that would have been. You know, I'm trying to like picture the, the weather that would be happening around this time. In fact, I went in and I took a look yesterday um, at what the temperature in Jerusalem would be about this time of year. Partially because uh, we did our, um, our passion workout last night for Faith Rx. Uh, we had like 15 people come out and we kind of like estimate what the weight of the crossbeam of the cross would have been and then how long he would have walked. Uh, and so we had a number of people do that, carrying uh, anywhere between 75 to 135 pounds for about half a mile. Uh, and so I was just kind of looking at because it was going to be a colder yesterday. And so I looked at the weather in Jerusalem and they would have had a high, uh, was a low of 40, like a high of 70 yesterday. Uh, and so like almost like perfect temperature for me, you know, midday, like 60, 70, something like that. And so what we're taking a look at, at Jesus here heading into Jerusalem, uh, which was a time of festival. And so a lot of people were coming into Jerusalem uh, as pilgrims traveling in order to be there for this. Uh, and so in my mind now, I'm kind of picturing like this perfect like 65, 70 degree day. The sun is shining. You got these roads. You're, you're up by Bethany where Lazarus is and he's heading down to Jerusalem. And, and there's Jerusalem in the distance and all of these different things happening. The, the crowds heard that Jesus was heading down to Jerusalem. Uh, and so they started to like come and see him and to see Lazarus as well. Uh, because this would have been after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Right? And so now he's like a local celebrity too. Not just Jesus who raises the dead and heals the sick and walks on water and, and every other miracle that they've heard. But, but now there's this guy who was dead and now isn't dead anymore. Um, if that happened here and now, like how many people would want to go visit that? And like talk to Lazarus and be like, okay, did you see anything? What was it like? You know, like all these questions. And so this crowd is coming out um, to head to where Jesus and Lazarus is um, and wanting to see what Jesus would do next. What's he going to do? And so then there's this whole story that takes place with this excitement of the festival, this religious tension of what Jesus is going to do next. Uh, and then Jesus tells his disciples, um, go into the city and find a cult that's tied up. And, and just untie the cult. Right? And if the owner says, hey, what's going on? Why are you doing this? He just says, like, the master has need of it. That's it. And just keep going. And, and so they go, and, and sure enough, and this whole thing takes place, and uh, the cult is provided, and they bring it back to Jesus for him to be able to, like, ride into Jerusalem on this cult. Which, again, would have added to this religious excitement and tension that was happening at that time. Would have added to it because it was part of the prophecies of what the coming king would do, of what the coming Messiah would do, that he would ride into Jerusalem. It was part of their prophecies in the Old Testament, the scrolls that they would read in synagogue. And so the Pharisees would have had this tension of like, oh, here he goes blaspheming again. Here he goes making these claims again. And the crowd would have been like, he's here, he's here. And so there's like all this tension that's happening between this and the crowds start to cry out, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. We'll read this text in Luke chapter 19. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now as he came near the path, down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God. 
joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Let's picture that for a second. What a powerful moment in history. What a powerful moment in the city of Jerusalem. A celebration and a declaration of Jesus as king. And it was an absolutely right and proper thing to do as Jesus was fulfilling prophecy and staking this claim. As we're going to continue on to this morning, there's more to this story. We're going to get into that and especially how it relates to us today and actually even relates to what we were talking about last week here. So uh, we'll pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your holy word. We thank you for this week, uh, everything that you did for us, um, every example that you set, every freedom that you modeled, the authority that you have that you gave to us, the penalty that you paid, the price that you paid to set us free, and that you did it with joy, with us in mind. We pray, Lord, as we look at these words, uh, that they would be alive and active to us. And as we go through this week, uh, that it would be on the front of our mind, everything that you've done, and that our lives would be modeled around that. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. All right, so this scene that we've been looking at is known as uh, the triumphal entry, this, this loud celebration and declaration of Jesus as king and this Hosanna. And so we've been going through this in Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 36 through 40, but here we get into 41. And so again, keep in mind everything that's happening, the celebration. People are like taking their cloaks off and laying it down on the ground and waving palm branches in the air. Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. And so this is what's happening. Now in verse 41, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. And so here he is riding on this colt, riding on this donkey. The city comes into view. There's this air of celebration around him and he sees Jerusalem and he actually begins to weep. Now this word here for weep is the Greek word um, klio, which is Strong's G2799, which means to mourn, sob, or wail loudly. And, and so it's not just like he's sitting there on this donkey with Jerusalem coming into view and there's like a tear that forms at the corner of his eye but rather it's a visible emotional response that people can see what's happening as Jesus responds this way. It continues on in verse 42. As he's weeping, as he's mourning, he says, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. And so Jesus here is, is actually prophesying and weeping what's going to happen to Jerusalem because they didn't recognize what God was actually doing in that moment. That, that Jesus was there as the Messiah. That the crowd that moment was declaring him as the Messiah. That, that he was there as the Messiah. But what they were expecting was for that Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. 
They had expectations of what was going to happen politically and uh, within their religious mindset of what the Messiah would do, how he would act, what he would change. And because of this expectation, they actually missed what the Messiah was there for. Not just to, to free Israel from Rome, but rather to free mankind from sin and death. For him to, to come not as a conquering king, but rather as a sacrificial lamb. To humbly and willingly give up his life in exchange for many. For his blood to pour out, even as his own people were mocking him and spitting on him. To do that with joy. For the idea of the reconciliation of mankind that was actually being purchased in that moment. The opportunity for you and I and countless others throughout history to be able to have our sins forgiven because the price was paid on the cross for us so that we would not have to bear that. In fact, what was one of the aspects of our workout last night is we're carrying this weight of this cross for half a mile, the, the distance that Jesus carried it. And, and you get through it and there's just weight bearing down and, and after we did it, uh, it took three la or four laps to be able to do that. After we did that, we actually like took off the weight and then took one more lap around. And some of the comments as we were talking about afterwards, well, it was just this meditation and reflection on, on what he did for us, just getting a, a picture of what he did for us, not the, the full experience, but just a portion of it. And, and what they had to endure last night, being able to empathize a bit with what Jesus did. But then that picture of being able to take off that weight and to take one more lap without that burden brought to mind to people this idea of we don't have to carry it. That, that we're free from having to carry the, the burden of sin and shame and death because Jesus did it for us. And that whole aspect of, of what the Messiah came to do, the high price that he was to pay in order to have forgiveness for mankind to be available, and then to head towards the resurrection, which we'll cover next week. But, but all of this is what the actual plan for the Messiah was going to be. But because the Jews, because Israel did not recognize it at that moment, even his own disciples fully didn't recognize it until after the resurrection, because they didn't get it, they would not recognize or accept him as the Messiah, or most of them would not do it. And so here Jesus is putting forth this prophecy. He's like, because you don't recognize what's actually happened, you're going to continue on in your old mindset of what the Messiah should be like, what the nation of Israel should be like, what it should look like, what it should do. And because you're going to continue on in that mindset, you're going to make choices in your life that are going to have severe consequences. And so he weeps because they're missing the truth of what the Messiah is about. And he's weeping because he knows what these consequences are going to be. He's talking about them being crushed. He's talking about a stone not sitting upon a stone anymore. In the year 66, some 30 years after Jesus died on the cross, uh, the Jews, in pursuit of their ideal understanding of what Israel would be, uh, began a full-out revolt against the Roman Empire. After two years of fighting, they retreated into Jerusalem and a siege began that lasted over 60 days. When the walls were finally breached, the Roman army stormed in and had no mercy. 
they ended up burning down the temple. The temple burned for days upon days upon days. And the heat of the burning of the temple melted all of the gold decorations. And this liquid gold seeped down into the cracks of the foundation of the temple. Once the fire ended, the Romans wanted that gold. And so they came in and pulled apart the temple stone by stone in order to get the melted gold out. And so therefore, fulfilling the prophecy where Jesus said, there would not be one stone left upon another. All an aspect of their consequence, of their continued choices as they held on to what they thought Israel should be. What they thought their identity should be. Instead of being humbly submitted to Christ as he came saying, this is your identity. This is the new creation. This is the hope. This is the reconciliation with God. They held on to the old identity, continuing to make choices based on that identity. And there was consequences according to that. Which is why, again, Jesus was saying in verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. The concept of peace for the nation of Israel, and even the, the disciples at that time, was the absence of Rome. But what Jesus was actually talking about was peace with God. And such peace with God and such trust in God that even if the Romans remained in occupation, they would have had a peace and a sense of trust in God in order to go through uh, whatever happened at that time. But they chose to revolt and were destroyed. This was just a continuation of Israel's history and cycle that they would go through throughout generations uh, of grabbing onto what they thought their identity was, instead of living out their God-given identity. That they were a chosen people, set apart. And yet time after time, as we look through the history, we see them often clinging to the old ways, clinging to the old idols of Egypt. Remember, they were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, to the point where they were being forced to, to gather straw in order to make bricks. And they did that for 400 years. They finally came to a place of freedom as they were led out miraculously after the, the ten plagues that happened in Egypt. They're, they're walking through this, and as they're going, their mindset was, well, I wish we had leeks again. Oh, the leeks and the onions. Forget the, the straw and the bricks and all those things. They, they were just like longing for food because they were tired of, of manna. They went through this whole process and again cling to the old ways. They went uh, to Mount Sinai and, and Moses goes up to talk to God. And in fact, there was this whole scene that happened before that where they got to the foot of Mount Sinai and there was this great cloud that covered over the mountain and, and God was speaking out of this cloud and the nation of Israel and God was saying, come up and visit me. And the nation of Israel was like, nope, we're terrified. Moses, you go. We're not getting any closer. We're terrified. God's so powerful. Who are we to go close to him? And so then Moses goes up to the mountain in order to commune and talk with God and receives the Ten Commandments. You remember what happened as he came down with the Ten Commandments the first time? The nation of Israel was there and they had thought, well, Moses is taking his time, so let's build a golden calf that we might worship it. Instead, like this whole thing of like, here's the presence of God overwhelming a mountain and shaking the ground. 
let's make a little gold calf that we can carry around, that we can control. And they would just head back to their old ways again and again. This is the things that happened where they were led into captivity and God would allow for difficult things to happen in order to bring them back. They were taken off to Babylon and and again that happened as a consequence of their choices trying to hold on to their identity in the way that they wanted to build it. And God allowed things to happen to bring them to a place of repentance in order to bring them back into a right relationship and, and trusting him in this. Now, this is where things start to come back to us here today. Last week, we took a look at what our identity is as a church. We went through a number of verses over and over again of how God sees us. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like how similar does that seem to what God gave to the nation of Israel? You're a chosen race, a a holy nation. But only some of them were priests. What God is saying here is you, as the saints of Christ, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. We looked at verses where we are the bride of Christ, that we're children of God, that we are heirs of God, receiving an inheritance in heaven, that that we are friends of Jesus, that we're deeply loved, that we are considered the righteousness of God. And last week we talked about like how hard that is to, to necessarily accept, but yet scripture says it's true. We are the righteousness of God. Here's our identity given to us by God, and we are deeply blessed by that. Now, this is not to replace Israel, but in fact, in Romans chapter 11, it says that this has been done in part to make Israel jealous in hopes of their returning to the identity that God had given to them. But just like Israel, we face some of the same challenges that Israel did. We face challenges with patience. They're sitting there waiting for Moses on the mountain. They get impatient. Let's make a calf. Let's make an idol. Let's worship that. They get struggling with the understanding of like, what is God doing? Why is he leading us this way and this way? And yet he provides water out of a rock for them as they're wandering through the desert. There's all this provision. And yet they don't understand what God is doing. And in that they're like, Well, I wish we had meat and leeks and garlic and onions and all of these other things. Like, life would be so much better if we could just get a meal with leeks. Now, leeks are great. I really like leeks. (laughs) But I don't know if I'd want to go back to 400 years of slavery for leeks. But the concept, again, is they were frustrated because they didn't understand in the moment what God was working on and what God was doing. And instead of trusting God in this and his promises for them, they begin to wander and to to search for other idols. The same thing can happen in our lives today. In our frustration and wondering, what is God doing? Or why does it seem like he's not answering my prayers? Or why does it seem he's not doing what I would like him to do? We can start to fall into, instead of trusting him, wandering off uh, into idolatry. Now again, not necessarily false idols uh, like Baal or Asherah. Maybe it is. 
But the point being is that we begin to show worship and trust into things in this world instead of Christ. We begin to make them idols. We look at the passage that we often go to within the Romans road, talking about salvation in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, he's the ruler of my life, I, I set everything else in accord with what he is and who he is and what he says, and I believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's this belief, Right? This word belief in the Greek is pistuo. Uh, it means to have faith. It means to have belief. But it also means to trust. To put trust in. And so we start to look at this with Jesus being the Lord of our life and our needing to have absolute trust in him. That's what it means for him to be our God. And that's what it means to begin to set up other idols in our life. Are there other things in our life that are like little lords that begin to dictate how we act and the choices that we make? Are there little things in our life that we put more trust in instead of Jesus? That we lean on first and then when that fails, then we go and say, God, I need your help in this area. Perhaps it's our own abilities and strengths in order to problem solve or to make decisions. Like, what seems right to me? Do I do this or this? Like, what makes the most sense to me? And we go through our thought processes, our pros and cons list. How often instead do we first go and say, God, what are we doing today? What would you like me to do? And, and to submit to that. And then maybe God says, yeah, work through this. Use wisdom. He's, in fact, he says, who's going to build a tower? You don't sit down and calculate, like, what's it going to take to build a tower? But the whole point is it's all in submission to him. We can use the wisdom and intellect that he's given to us, but it must be all placed underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. Where we come and say, this is what makes sense to me, but God, if I'm wrong, I need you to show me. Or if you want me to do something else, I need you to show me. If you want me to sell everything that I have and give it to my brothers and sisters in the church, I need you to show me. And he did that to the church in Acts. It's a full submission to him. And if we trust in our own wisdom and our own abilities, our own intellect, and if we then find ourselves at a roadblock and then going to Jesus, it might be an idol in our life. Could be politics and looking at and, and having anxiety over the course of our nation. Where we sit and we look at, well, if this person's in office or this person's in office, Things are going to go really bad. It's going to be really hard. And we have anxiety over what the next four years might be like or whatever the results of the next election. If we have anxiety over the outcome of elections, it might show that politics are an idol in our life because we're trusting that for our peace and security instead of Jesus Christ. It's falling into the same trap as Israel did. We'd be more comfortable, we'd be more at peace if the Romans weren't here and we'd be able to have our country ran the way that we want our country to be ran. It's essentially what they wanted. And as Christians, we can fall into that same trap. If we had this person in the office, we had this person in the Supreme Court, we had this person, or Congress, or Senate, or if this was all aligned, then we could have the country that we would want. And then we would have peace. That's never existed in the entire history of mankind where there's been a country and a political system that has followed 
God exactly. We look back and we like look at the founding fathers. Like it was based on this. They had slaves. It wasn't an example of what it means to submit everything to Christ. And so we can't lean on that. Maybe it's our finances and our budget where we sit down and we look at, okay, this is how much money I have, and this there, this there, this there. Everything's going smoothly and great, no problem. Oh, now I don't have enough. Now I'm going to go to God and say, what am I supposed to do that I'm short? That my budget has failed. I need you to step in. That might be revealing that money is an idol. Finances are an idol in your life. Versus that full submission in building the budget and the step-by-step, even the daily aspects of, well, it's in my budget to, to go and have this vacation. It's in my budget to go and buy this shovel for my garden. Lord, is there something else I'm supposed to do with that money? It, it might seem tedious, right, to be like every little thing. But again, it's a mindset. It's a mindset that we get into as a steward of what God has given to us that we begin to walk with him in all of these decisions. To the point where it's not necessarily, oh, um, can I have this hamburger? Can I have this stick of gum? Can I buy this? But, but it becomes a mindset of, Lord, every day I'm fully submitted to you. My finances are submitted to you. And I trust for your Holy Spirit to reveal to me if there's something else that I'm supposed to do. But it's a mindset of him first, his guidance first, instead of turning to it after things seem to fail. We can do this in our friendships. We can do this in families. We can do this within marriages. Where we can trust in our husband and wife to be our strength more than trusting in Christ. And if if they're unable to help us, then we go to Jesus. We can have idolatry in our marriages. It's not the way it's designed, but we can slip into that if we trust the other person more than we trust Jesus. That that when we're hurting, we turn to them and saying, can you fix me? Instead of going to Jesus and saying, I need your help in this area in my life. Can do with our jobs. Can it even be done in religious traditions? Which is exactly what the Pharisees did. They had things that were supposed to be the way it was, the way that their faith should be, the way that synagogue should be, the way that the teachers should be, the way that Messiah should be. And they held to that so rigidly that they missed what God was doing. We can do the same thing today. What should church look like? What should church music be like? What's the right ratio of, of hymns to contemporary What should be the different ministries of a church? What should Christians do or not do? What music should they listen to or not listen to or books or videos or all of these other things? We we can start building on all these extra rules the way that the Pharisees did in order to have a semblance of control and what they did was created an idolatry of their own religion. And we can fall into the same trap today if we build our own Christian rules and systems and then begin to trust more than Jesus. In fact, that was one of the shocking things. The Pharisees were the ones that that kind of built this structure of religion. And then when Jesus came and he didn't fit into that structure, they labeled him as the one who sits and eats with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. They weren't willing to even accept him. We could fall into that same danger 
as a church, if we begin to build and trust our own structures and our own ideas of what it should be instead of, and we build on top of God's word instead of simply standing on God's word. If we do these things and fall into these traps of modern uh, idolatry, we can be just like the nation of Israel and then begin to miss what Jesus is doing. Because they were so fixated in what they thought their identity as Israel should be, they missed what Jesus was doing. They were so fixated in what they thought the Messiah would do, they missed it. Because they missed it, they continued to live life according to the old identity or their created identity, making decisions and then the consequences as a result of that. We can have the same thing happen to us. We might be in a difficult financial situation that could be an opportunity to to trust in Christ for provision. To, To step out in faith. Maybe to even do something that makes no earthly sense with our finances, what we've saved up. A chance to trust him in those things. But if our mindset is, no, that doesn't make financial sense, we might actually miss what God's calling us to do. It's one of the the issues that I have with even some uh, financial programs, even Christian uh, financial programs. Some of them are like, okay, debt is evil. And if you have debt, what you need to do is work and work and work and work in order to get rid of debt. So then if that debt is gone, you now have freedom to be able to do what God's wanting you to do. Could you get two jobs? Could you get three jobs? And spend the next 10 years just wiping out all debt so that that's all gone. And, and then once that's gone, then you're going to have some financial freedom in order to do what you want to do and what you feel like God's calling you to do. In other words, be a slave to money for 10 years. Have that be your priority. So that you can meet an earthly ideal and then have freedom. Is God calling you to set aside 10 years of your life where the only thing that you do is work two or three different jobs in order to pay off the stuff that you want to have? So that after 10 years, then you can maybe start doing some, oh, but also enjoy the things that you want to enjoy. God wants us to be fully submitted to him in all of those things. We do not want to be slaves to debt. I'm not saying don't pay off debt. I'm not saying that at all. But what can happen is we build on top of these things using human logic. And some Christian people and programs out there will say, nose to the grindstone until you're free. And what it does is sucks up all of our time, all of our energy, all of our efforts and then we can't even participate in what God might want us to do over the course of those 10 years. There's freedom in all those years. Lord, I have some debt. How do I do this? Let's walk together. I have debt, but I feel like you're calling me to give money over here. The freedom is to participate with him over here and to trust him with the debt. That's trusting God as Lord and Savior over all things. We can again miss out on what Jesus is doing if we're so falling into structures that humans can build and trusting in those things. It needs to be our whole lives, our whole trust in Christ. It must be living out of our identity as a chosen people, 
from the moment of our salvation in everything that we do. Not just going to him for help when we meet a dead end and we're at the end of ourselves. It starts off in salvation with the end of ourselves. And saying, okay, it's now all yours. How do we walk through this? If we're able to do that, we're then able to walk as this chosen people in freedom, regardless of the circumstances that come into us. But if we lose sight of it, we begin to get bogged down by life because we're trusting in other things, other things that are fallible, other things that do not have the power of heaven. We lose our place of peace and joy, and we forget our identity. And then we miss what God might be doing. Now, in his grace and mercy, he will allow us to walk in some of the consequences of our decisions because it causes us to recognize we needed him the whole time. And we can turn. There's other times his grace and mercy will rescue us despite our mistakes. And we're grateful for those things. Again, what we're called to is a simple trust in Christ. Simple faith in him alone. Believing what he says is true even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment. It's that aspect of supernatural trust. Israel, even though... Everything that they were hoping for, everything that they were believing in is the throwing off of Rome. If they would have been able to say, okay, but we trust you, what are we supposed to do? They wouldn't have made the choices that they made and their history would have been different in situation after situation after situation. It's the same thing for us in our life as Christians. God's calling us to live out of the identity that we looked at last week. As a chosen race, a royal priesthood, sons and daughters of God, of co-heirs with Christ, of friends of Christ, as the bride. This is how we're supposed to walk. This is the identity he's given to us. And, and if we walk in that, we have freedom and joy and peace, regardless of what's happening in the world around us. The test to examine our lives is, do we have that peace that he's promised to us? And if you notice areas in your life that you don't, it's worth examining and saying, if I put trust in something else, and is that why I don't have peace? Because you remember what he said on the night that he was betrayed, my peace I give to you. The peace that Jesus had, even as he headed to the cross in the most difficult of circumstances, the peace that he had knowing that this is what was needed to happen, that all things were right. That is the peace that he died to give us. It is our birthright. It is our gift. We can walk in it through faith and because he did the work so that we don't have to. We just need to submit to him and the Holy Spirit pointing out the areas where we struggle with so that we can set those things aside as well. Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, this morning uh, thankful for uh, this passage and the history of you heading into Jerusalem. Even looking at how it was a celebration uh, and in the midst of that right celebration of you coming as the king, uh, there were also aspects to mourn over as people were missing what was really happening. And so Lord, we are grateful and we celebrate and rejoice in the identity that you have given to us as your children, 
as your heirs, as co-heirs with Christ, as your righteousness, because you gave it to us in Jesus. We rejoice over all of those things. We're so grateful for them. But even in that, there's areas of our lives that we might miss walking out in that identity because we've placed some trust in other things that we may not look at them as idols, but the truth is we trust in those first before you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to examine our life, to reveal what those areas are, uh, that we might bring them into alignment and submission uh, to you as our master and us as stewards. Again, we acknowledge that all things are yours. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would help to adjust our perspective so that we might walk in the fullness of freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.